This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Man, we got a great show coming up here for you as we continue to follow the uh, that breaking news on Andrew Scheer, the federal conservative leader, stepping down. I guess not a surprise in some ways that he's going. I thought he was kind of going to have to step down after he couldn't take down Trudeau in the last election. They had him right where they wanted him, and he couldn't get it done. And I think that was it for Scheer at that point, one and done. I think he wanted another crack at it. He was indicating he was going to fight to stay on, but the writing was on the proverbial wall there for him. Then you get this incredible story by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, very fine reporter there in Ottawa, that maybe this had something to do with uh, the Conservative Party paying for his kids' private school education. we got lots of great guests and analysts coming up on that story. And I want you to phone me on the buzz line, too, about it and tell me what you think about Sheer stepping down today. You think this is a good thing for the party or a bad thing? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Another story we're taking a look at today, ride hailing and the patchwork of municipal business licenses that we're seeing across Metro Vancouver now. This is insane. This is crazy. This is not the way to run a modern business. This is a company and an industry that's supposed to operate right across the Metro Vancouver region. They're supposed to be able to go across municipal boundaries and pick up passengers and get them to where they want to go. That's why we're bringing it in. That's how the ta- the taxi industry has got these ridiculous laws about they can't cross municipal boundaries. We want to get rid of that with ride hailing. And that's the way it's supposed to work. These ride hailing vehicles are supposed to operate Uh, right across Metro Vancouver. And yet now you've got this system where they have to get a separate business license in every municipality. Some of them millions of dollars. This is ridiculous. Now you're hearing more and more groups coming forward and say, look, let's get a little common sense going here. I know that's kind of in short supply on this issue, but really, like, what you need is one single business license for the whole metro vancouver region then you could have the municipalities share the share the revenue or whatever but don't make these companies get a, a different license in every city that's just that's ridiculous so here's the hot question today supporters ride hailing calling for a single business license for across metro vancouver do you support that idea would you say yes that's an efficient way to go that's the way we should do it or would you say no they should have to get a separate business license for every city across the whole metro region. At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Follow me while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Smith spelled with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet it for you there. You'll find it there, too. I got a feeling this one's going to be a little lopsided today. We'll see. I just informed my colleagues in the Conservative Caucus that I will be resigning as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I've asked the Conservative Party National Council, I I will be asking the Conservative Party National Council to immediately begin the process of organizing a leadership election. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. It's a sheer shocker. Andrew Scheer announcing he is stepping down as the leader of the federal Conservative Party. There had been a lot of pressure on him to step down, but he had had been indicating he was going to fight to hang in there and maybe fight another election. That's all over with. He announced today he will step down as leader of the Conservative Party. Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson, bombshell report that she has today. Uh, she reports his resignation comes as a direct result of new revelations that Andrew Scheer was using Conservative Party cash 
to pay for his children's private education and that this had become an issue inside the conservative party ranks. We're following this breaking story for you on the show today. Let's check in now with Michael Tobe. He's a, a columnist with Troy Media, former speechwriter for former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper. Michael, it's nice to talk to you again. My pleasure, Mike. Michael, I know you'd been writing that you're you are a, a, a backer of Sheer and that you're hoping he was going to stay on. Your thoughts yep. on this resignation announcement? Yeah, pretty stunning. I mean, obviously, you're going to find some people, as I've been saying to a couple others earlier today, that will come out and say, oh, I already expected it. I knew it was going to happen. No, no one saw it coming today, mainly because you don't expect it of someone, Mike, who has already basically set up his opposition benches with all the, his various critics, set up his deputy leader. He was ready to go, and he was ready to go up until the party leadership review next April. Now, he might have lost it. He might have won it. Nobody knows. <clears throat> but I think as of right now, nobody really saw Andrew Scheer going at all. I, I think a lot of people are very stunned by it. And uh, it's unfortunate. I think that, you know, he had done well enough to stay on. He had increased the party by 26 seats. They had won the popular vote overall. And yes, I know we're in a first-past-the-post type electoral system where it doesn't matter but those are moral victories that typically, Mike, allows a political leader to get what's called the second kick at a can in terms of running for a second election. Usually ele leaders get two chances to win an election, and if they don't, usually the party will then turn on them or ask them to leave. Now, I know it's not mandatory. I know you, when you sign the contract, so to speak, to become a leader, there's no such thing. But it's just an understood principle, and I thought Sheer had done enough up until this point. So, you know, based on everything that's happening, which I'm sure we'll talk about, all the things that were swirling in terms of criticism about him, in terms of his leadership style, the election strategy, his social conservative values, and even what Mercedes Stevenson has now thrown into the mix. And I've known Mercedes a long time, and I have great respect for her as a reporter, as a journalist, but I sincerely hope that this story is not true, because if it is, that would be, well, it would be a very devastating ending to an election that wasn't too bad overall in 2019 and gave the Conservatives at least some more hope to do better the next time out, yeah. and just a sort of a sad way to step down as a leader in general. But again, oh. we'll see what happens with that. Okay, story. that story by Mercedes Stevenson, who, by the way, I think is a heck of a reporter and does a great job. She is uh, quoting what she says, multiple sources telling her in the Conservative Party that uh, the party was paying for Shears children to go to private school he's got his kids enrolled in a, in a faith-based uh, faith-based private school and the conservative right. party was paying for it she says that the conservative fund at the conservative party was paying for this uh, for this education and some con senior conservatives were told her that the expenditures were made without the knowledge or approval of this conservative fund board including the chair of the board your thoughts on that yeah, again, it, it, these are allegations, and I'm not going to say they're set in stone. Like I said before, I greatly respect Mercedes, and she is a she has a nose for news. She knows this game well, and she obviously would go to multiple sources. So if, if that's what she has in her piece, I agree with it, and I'm sure she did. Um, I think it comes down to whether or not people knew. If the, if the National Council or the Conservative Fund itself, the, the party fund, if they were fully aware of those, if that, those terms and conditions, and we're paying, from what I understand anyways, the difference between it, because obviously these are children in Saskatchewan where Mr. Shear is a representative. He obviously is in Ottawa most of the time where he's the opposition leader. 
that's not a, those sort of circumstances are not unusual if the party agrees to it. If there were a lot of people that were out of the loop, Mike, well, that's a completely okay. separate story in itself. But again, I think we have to wait for more details to come out. Michael, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. Michael Tobe, he's a conservative with Troy, a columnist with Troy Media, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, the former conservative prime minister. Let's check in with Stephen Harper's former press secretary now, Sarah McIntyre. She's a communications consultant with Conservative Victory. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for coming on. You had been uh, one of the first people uh, in in the conservative ranks to pipe up and say that maybe the party would be better off with a, with a new leader. Your thoughts on Shear's resignation today? Well, uh, this is what uh, our group, Conservative Victory, was uh, um, organized to do: is to trigger a leadership election process. So, pleased with today's announcements, and uh, you know, I think the the troubling news that uh, you were just referring to that uh, Mercedes was reporting on. Um, I, I think it's not any coincidence that he decided to resign today as that story was breaking. Um, so I think there's some questions that need to be answered and uh, who paid for the money, who approved it, uh, you know, and, and actually a, a full accounting of all of those costs while he was leader. Um, because if I was a conservative member, uh, and I am, I'd be really worried about where my, my donations, uh, would be going if I'm sending it to the conservative party. Am I going to be paying for someone's education or is it going to be going to support getting a new conservative government elected? Sarah, why did you think the party should get a new leader? Well, you know, I, um, look, the last leadership election process we had, which is a preferential ballot, you know, Andrew Scheer run by, I think it was 0.5%. So um, I don't think he had a, a great level or deep level of support among the membership. Uh, and I think the, the campaign had several missteps. And I also think, that, you know, uh, part of those missteps were also communications errors and, you know, not having a fulsome answer on gay and lesbian uh, rights right. and same-sex marriage, as well as his own uh, resume as well as own citizenship. Uh, there's there's a few things there that I think uh, uh, for me uh, I didn't want him to be uh, uh, given another coronation and a chance to to lead the party again to another defeat. What did you think about his uh, social conservative values on on things like you mentioned uh, same sex marriage and 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 uh, associated issues? He didn't want to. Re- he basically flat out refused to uh, march in a pride parade. Um, he, he's a very, uh, devout Catholic and that's fine. I mean, Justin Trudeau says he's a devout Catholic too, and yet he will go march in a pride parade. What do you think about his decision to sort of draw that line in the sand saying like, Oh, I, I support uh, LGBTQ rights, but I'm not going to march in a pride parade. Is that a problem? Well, it wasn't necessarily even just marching and not refusing to march in a parade, but I think what you know, his, his position was. I support these rights because that's the law of the land, um, not because he supports those rights because they're the rights that should be protected. And and I think that gives a, a wink and a nod to those people that don't support those rights, that uh, he is your guy. And I don't think somebody like that should be running for prime minister or running my party. Okay, I spoke earlier, and I think you heard the conversation with Michael Tobe, uh, mm-hmm. another former conservative insider, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, who supported Scheer. Uh, felt that he deserved another shot here to lead the party into another election. He said he c- increased the Conservative Party seat count. He increased the popular vote. He should have got another ch- another chance. 
Why do you think, why do you disagree with him? Why do you think he should not have gotten another chance? Well, I think, you know, you get one kick at the can and, you know, uh, he can, uh, by all means, throw his hat in and try and run for a leader again. Um, I don't think, you know, stepping down and resigning disqualifies him from trying to run for the leadership and get the support of the party again. Um, uh, But I I, look, I I don't believe in coronations. I believe you need to go out and demonstrate to the membership why you should get another chance. And, you know, he also was the leader that got us completely shut out of uh, of Toronto. Uh, We we talk a lot about how the liberals got shut out of the uh, out of the West. I think it's a big problem for conservatives that we were completely shut out, uh, out of the GTA. Who do you think should be the new leader of the party? <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, <laughs> look, I, I don't have uh, a horse in this race at all. I'm just glad that the race is happening. Um, I think that uh, it would be wise if we had a longer uh, process so that we could get as many people throwing their hat in as, as possible. Um, and it'd be nice to have somebody, you know, that has a little bit more experience uh, in their private life and career than um, either Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer, frankly, um, and, and be able to bring that to the party. So, you know, I'm looking forward to see uh, some new faces and some new names perhaps uh, file uh, for and, and throw their hat in the ring. How, how about an old name, Peter McKay? <laughs> oh, I like Peter. Um, you know, it, there's, I think there's been lots of talk about him in, in Toronto, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of people that support him. So, you know, um, he, is he considering it seriously? I don't know. I mean, there is talk about it the last time we had a leadership race, too, and, and he didn't follow through on it. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. But um, I think a lot of people are going to be having I, some serious conversations over Christmas. I got a feeling he is interested in the job, especially when he had that incredible quote about Shear <laughs> that it was, he was, it was almost like he was on a breakaway on an open net, and then he, and he shot wide in this election yeah. when he couldn't beat Trudeau. I think he's ambitious, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. What do you think about the fact that Shear announced this morning that he will resign as party leader, but he's going to stay on as the leader of the party until his replacement is chosen? <laughs> so that keeps him around for a while. Do you think he should step down sooner? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it would just be a distraction. And I, frankly, you don't get to resign and set your own terms, uh, even in politics. Um, and I also think that if these allegations about the private school uh, funds coming from the, the party are proven to be true, it's going to be absolutely impossible for him to be able to stay on uh, in sworn away and uh, as in, as interim leader. Uh, so, you know, what would happen then? Would you have caucus would have an election and determine who the interim leader should be until uh, the leadership election process is done? Okay. Well, that could be another problem here going forward in the days ahead. Sarah, thank you very much for coming on. Okay. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate it. Sarah McIntyre, she's a communications consultant. She's with the group Conservative Victory. That was a group that was formed to try and get Shear to step down as leader. They said if they want to win... The party needed a new leader. They couldn't take out Justin Trudeau when they had him right where they wanted him. So you got to get someone new to take over. Uh, they got what they wanted today with Andrew Scheer announcing that he will step down as the leader of the party. Although, as we discussed there, he says he will stay on as the leader until a replacement is chosen. I got a feeling some people are going to want him to go sooner than that. Getting ready for his final show on the Vancouver Airwaves tomorrow morning. John McComb has been with CKNW Radio for the past 36 years. He's the most listened to radio host in Vancouver today. And as he prepares to step down, we wanted to take the time to speak to the man behind the microphone and get him to reflect a bit on his career 
and how he plans to spend his retirement. Before we go to John, let's get a bit of help here with this introduction from our big voice guy. CKNW News Talk 980 presents The World Today. Now, here is your host, John McComb. Hello, John. Uh, that was Jim Conrad. Does that bring you back? That is Jim Conrad. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, that was back in, uh, I guess I was doing that show solo by that point, so that would have been, uh, what, uh, 2000s, something like that? All right, you've been counting down the shows all this week. Yeah. You're down to one more. Yep. What's going through your mind today as you get ready for tomorrow? Uh, I've been doing interviews since I got off the air at 10 o'clock, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to some downtime. Uh, no, look, it's been a, uh, a, a hell of a ride uh, for me, um, considering you know, where uh, I started in, uh, under the circumstance I started in uh, to be uh, here and um, you know, to have the, had the longevity that I've had at CKNW. Uh, to work with some of the the greatest uh, you know people in the world in this business, so uh, it's been a it's been a huge run. It's been a, a huge amount of fun, but uh, you know I'm 66, right? So getting up early in the morning is uh, starting to wear, and um, so it's time for me to um, do other things. Still, still use the voice. The voice still works. Uh, <laughs> just just do it at a at a normal hour rather than uh, so early in the morning. Well, it has been a hell of a run, a Hall of Fame run, I would say. Let, let's talk Thanks. a little bit about how you started out here, John. You you grew up, you were born in uh, the States, right? Uh, born in the States, grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, I have wanted, uh, I was a bit of a, I don't know, broadcasting geek or an equipment geek or something back in the day because I was always fascinated by uh, radio, I was fascinated by television and all of the equipment and the dials and the lights and the stuff. Uh, so... From the time I was about uh, 10 or 11 years old, I, I had this drive to be in broadcasting. And uh, so I started, you know, other kids were out playing football and baseball, and I was hanging around radio stations. Wow. Which, which when I look back on it, was probably uh, not the best environment uh, for a kid that age. But uh, I learned a hell of a lot about radio. And then. What stations were those? Where were you hanging out at that time? Uh. I don't even think they exist anymore. There was a, a rock station in Tucson called KIKX, Kicks, oh. Kicks 58. And they had the coolest uh, red Dodge Charger news cruisers. Mm. These things were awesome. And you'd see them going down the street and you'd just go, wow, man, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, so when I, then I got into high school and um, my... Between my grade 11 and 12 in that summer, I started working at a, a new uh, FM station in, uh, in Tucson playing what was then described as progressive rock, which is now called classic rock. So <laughs> I've, I've, managed to, uh, I've managed to work and see both formats. So yeah, I started when I was 17. I just turned 17 years old and uh, thank God it worked out because uh, there's nothing else that really inter interests me uh, that much. So. When did you come to Canada and how did you start your career? Here. I came to Canada the, uh, the first time in 1972. Uh, a buddy of mine, who we're actually going to have on the sh on the show tomorrow, Terry McDonald, uh, he was one of the guys that I used to hang out with uh, in in radio uh, back in the day. Uh, he was um, talking to a station called KYA in San Francisco about doing their morning show, 
And he was also talking to a station up here called CKVN, which later they got the call letters back to be CFUN. Um, so he recommended me for the job up here. He took the San Francisco job, and uh, as it turned out, I, I got the job up here and was a disc jockey for, um, I guess, about a year or so. Uh, but then I, I figured that there wasn't really much uh, of a future playing rock and roll records, not seeing the classic rock format coming along. So I got into news and started reading the news and, uh, you know, learning how to be a, you know, a newsman yeah. back in the day and uh, really enjoyed it. It really uh, piqued my curiosity. It piqued my, uh, my fascination with, uh, with people and wanting to, to know more. And uh, yeah, so I've been at it. Uh, been at it ever since speaking to john mccomb on the eve of his final morning show tomorrow speaking of uh the intriguing people that you've met over the years john when you, when you look back what are some of the more interesting interviews that stick out in your mind i was afraid you were going to ask me that mm. uh that, that's up there with what's the biggest story you've ever covered and i <laughs> um i don't know i've you know i've i've interviewed so many you know, really interesting people who who, who probably are not uh, household names, but yeah. you know have done uh, remarkable things, and uh, it's it's always been uh, to me one of the the great pleasures to just to sit down and and talk to people for whatever it is ten or fifteen minutes or twenty minutes, and uh, and find out you know who they are as people and you know the connections that they've made and all of that. Um, I mean, prime, you know, prime ministers, uh, presidents, uh, uh, I never interviewed the Pope, but uh, covered the Pope. Um, just, you know, every, every kind of conceivable person from, from A to Z. So. You've had a lot of sort of interesting transitions through your career and sort of different formats on the air. And mm -hmm. I remember you co-hosted with Philip Till for, for some years. And yeah. What was it like leaving that partnership and sort of going solo as a solo host? Well, it was for me. It was, uh, and I th and I think for Till as well. It was a, a bit of a drag because we. Uh, you guys we, had a lot of fun together. We had a tremendous. We we're just talking yeah. about it yesterday. I was talking to him on the phone, and we were uh, reminiscing about uh, <laughs> just the great, the the great thing about the the world today with the two of us was that we would come in and uh, nothing was scripted. Nothing was, you know, and we just would just would take. I mean, there were segments were produced but we would take whatever we had and we would just sort of go on the air with it and then we would just bounce off each other yeah. and the chemistry uh was so good um the the it was so much fun that it didn't seem like you were going to work it was like hey you know you, you're going to uh, you know bs with your with your good buddy across yeah. the table yeah. and that's what we did and we made a show out of it and people loved it, you know, yeah. just absolutely loved it. I still get uh, emails. I was saying to Phil yesterday, you know, we still get emails from people saying, loved you guys, you know, when you were with Phil and, and you know, the laughs and the jokes and the crying out loud and, and all that stuff. Uh, so it was a uh, – I look back on that and I think that was really uh, one of the highlights, if not the highlight of my career, was, uh, was working with Till – uh, over those years, because we just had so much fun together. Let me ask you about another co-worker that you had, and I, mm -hmm. I find this intriguing. Her name was Christy Clark. Remember her? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and when she was a host at NW, I think you guys shared an office, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. 
What uh, was it? Li- I'm curious. What was it like? You know, you worked with Christy Clark as a colleague. Uh-huh. Then she becomes premier. Suddenly, she's on the other side of the microphone. Yeah. What was that like going from that transition, working with her, and then covering her, and when she's premier? Well, when she worked here, uh, I absolutely uh, I thought she was fantastic. Uh, and, and you know, Christy Clark, she has a mm-hmm. uh, she is a tremendously uh, upbeat and. Uh, uh, you know, very charming personality. She's a, she's got that that fabulous smile, and um, you know, she was fun to work with. Uh, we we talked. I mean, I I think we became pretty good friends. Um, you know, we talk about politics and what was going on with you know when Gordon Campbell was premier, and you yeah. know, there was a lot of inside baseball stuff. Um, but then she. Uh, Decided to make the run for the liberal leadership, yeah, and won. And the relationship, I think, by definition, had to change yeah. because now, uh, you know, just as she had done when she was a, a talk show host, uh, you know, she held other politicians' feet to the fire and asked tough questions, and, right? And that was what I've always thought. Uh, that's what Rafe Mayer taught me was, you know, yeah. hold them, hold those feet to the fire. Yeah. So I guess what happened, uh, I might have been uh, overzealous in, in my, my uh, pursuit of questioning her. Uh, and I think that she didn't, uh, in a lot of ways, didn't take it very well. Yeah. Didn't take it as, um, you know, she didn't see it the same way I did. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And so we do, you know, over the, over the years, um, I would say things like, well, we've, you know, Asked uh, Christy Clark to come on the show fifty times now. She said no again. She said no again, and it, <laughs> I mean, it just became a, you know, it just became like a, a, a thing. It just became, you know, I tend yeah. toward being a bit, a bit uh, lippy and cynical, and it just became, you know, something to, to have some fun with, basically. All right, and then it, you know, I, I don't think that she she really took too kindly to it, and uh, you know, we still don't. Uh, we still don't talk to this day, which is uh, which is unfortunate. CKNW's own John McComb on the eve of his final show tomorrow. It's uh, so kind of him to spend some time with us today. Ah, so Mike, we'll spend time with you career. anytime. Oh, I appreciate You're awesome, that, John. man. I've, I've <laughs> loved talking to you of, uh, during the during the morning show to, over the uh, last five or six years. I think uh, you should do this full time. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss talking to you. I can tell you that it's it's been uh, one of the pleasures in my career for sure oh, to get you. to know you over the years. Let me ask you about um, how radio has changed over the time that since when you started. You mentioned you were a kid. This is what you wanted to do when you were a kid. Yeah. And you've been behind the microphone for a long time. You think it's changed a lot over the years? Oh yeah, I mean, tech, uh, technology-wise, it's it's like uh, it, it's hard to uh, you know get your head around how uh, technological mm-hmm. change has occurred in the broadcasting business. You know what used to uh, cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars for. Uh, studio equipment and mixing boards and microphones and, and all of that. I mean, now uh, you can have a uh, an unlimited number of tracks uh, on your computer uh, in in any sort of uh, uh, recording program. So 
Yeah, it's changed uh, a lot. I, what I don't think has changed, and, and uh, I was talking to somebody earlier about, you know, where is radio going? Yeah. I'm not sure that, um, you know, we, we're on an AM radio station. Well, AM radio has been around for a very, very long time, and I, I don't know that there's, um, you know, a, another century left in this technology. But what we do every day, talking to people, getting people's opinions, uh, finding out what uh, they're thinking, uh, you know, doing the news, talking about the issues of the day, right. uh, whatever the delivery system is, whatever the technology is, I think that will always be, uh, there will always be a demand for that. Because the one thing that I've been able to, uh, you know, develop over the years simply by being here for so long is that people uh, come to trust what I say. You know, they trust my opinion. They may not like it. They may not agree with it, but they respect me for, uh, you know, the, the, the body of work that I've, I've put together. And I think that, that one of the keys to that has just been this ability to uh, have a conversation with people and, uh, and listen, listen to what people are saying and um, just having this sort of uh, town hall of, of the air every day. And uh, I don't think that the demand for that will ever go away. People... You know, more than ever, people need good, right. solid, uh, truthful information uh, about their, their lives and what's going on around them. So, Let me ask you about what I think is maybe one of the most amazing aspects of, of your career, and, and that's the, the passion that you've shown for mental health, your involvement with the Mental Disorders Association of BC, being so outspoken about your own personal struggles, mm -hmm. so bravely to talk about that. How did you decide to do that, John, when you were talking about, man, should I talk about the, my, my own situation on the air, which I think has inspired so many people? But that, was that a tough choice for you? Uh, no, not, not really, because it, uh, it, it happened about – I talked about it, began talking about uh, my mental health uh, situation about, I don't know, seven or eight years after I had uh, – uh, had a, a real serious uh, burnout and crash and had to take seven months off work from, from NW. Yeah. And I've always been uh, uh, very uh, thankful that the, the station didn't, uh, you know, didn't let me go. They, they held on to me and said, you know, go away and get, and get better and then come back. And uh, so I did. But I was writing an editorial about a uh, former Vancouver Canuck player named Rick Rippon. I don't know if people remember Rick Rippon. He he played for the Canucks for a couple of years. He was a fan favorite. He was a guy who, you know, went out and, and, and crashed and banged and, uh, uh, you know, really, uh, I think, caught the hearts of Vancouver hockey fans. Well, uh, in the off in the summer, he uh, had he had had trouble with mental illness in the past and he committed suicide. Wow. So I sat down and started to write, you know, I was moved to write about him and talk about, you know, what, why would a guy with, who apparently had the world by the tail, why would he take his own life? And, and as I wrote, I started to fall back and remember what I went through. And at one point I said, I don't, I didn't know Rick Ribbon personally, but I certainly understand Right. Why he would take his life, feeling the way, feeling the way I felt, which was which was terrible. I never I never contemplated suicide, but I I certainly could understand somebody doing that. And so then it sort of kind of spun into my story, and uh, yeah, I read it on the air and uh, trying to 
you know, lessen the stigma around mental illness and all that. I think it's I think it's awesome. Awesome that you did that. Thirty sec. We have just thirty seconds left here, John. Do you think? I think you're leaving the station in, in really good hands with the people that you've mentored over the years. Just in thirty seconds, do you want to talk a little bit about? You know, do you feel pride of the young people that you've helped along the way here? I've. Uh, it, it's been a mutual relationship with uh, uh, Nikki Reitmeyer and Greg Schott, yeah. uh, who yeah. are uh, uh, and and Victor uh, Young, who has uh, just come in the last few weeks. But I've always had uh, a really good relationship with with my team because they energize me as much as I might, uh, you know, lead them. And so uh, it really is a group effort. It isn't just uh, one person. And uh, yeah, I've been I've been blessed to work with some absolutely uh, wonderful, talented people, and uh, I've got uh, wonderful, talented people around me now. So it's worked Thank- out well. Thanks for doing this, John. Have a great show tomorrow. Thanks, Mike. All right, John McComb. Tomorrow, got down to one. He's been counting down the shows this week. One more to go tomorrow. Really appreciate his time today. I just informed my colleagues in the Conservative Caucus that I will be resigning as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I've asked the Conservative Party National Council, I, I will be asking the Conservative Party National Council to immediately begin the process of organizing a leadership election. All right, it's Andrew Scheer, the federal conservative party leader, announcing today he's stepping down. It's a sheer shocker, he told the House of Commons. This is the best decision uh, for the party. Interesting and fascinating context on this story, which uh, comes from Mercedes Stevenson, the very fine global news reporter, who reports about some of the background in this story, that there was trouble inside the conservative ranks with revelations that the conservative party was paying for Scheer's kids private school education mercedes stevenson is the ottawa bureau chief for global news host of the west block she broke the story wide open she's been speaking to global news radio about where she got the scoop i have multiple sources who are telling me that there was outrage inside the party uh and inside the conservative fund in particular which is all of the money when they found out that the conservative leader was being reimbursed for the cost of his children's private school Okay, she's also speaking about why so many people are upset about the allegations. I have multiple sources who are telling me they're not happy with the fact that the fund didn't know, in part because there is the concern about if you're saying, I'm the average everyday person and I understand it, but you're getting help paying for your children's private school, you have a real problem there in terms of credibility. And I know that there's a lot of people inside the Conservative Caucus who I've been hearing from who are very angry right now. Okay, she's a terrific reporter. He's done an awesome job on this. Andrew Shear, meanwhile, says he's going to stay on as the leader of the party until a permanent replacement is selected. But how do party insiders feel about that? And how does he stay on as interim leader now is the other question. And he'd said that he plans to, but I know that I'm hearing from members of caucus already that there are people who are saying that they do not think he should be able to stay on as interim leader, that they're too angry, that they think this makes them a huge target, and they're, they're not happy about the fact that they didn't know about this. That's Mercedes Stevenson. What a great reporter she is for Global News. Let's check in with Charles Adler now. He's the host of Charles Adler Tonight right here on CKNW and the Chorus Radio Network about this story. He's been covering it a lot at night. Hi, Charles. How you doing, Mike? What are your thoughts on uh, the announcement from Shear today? Well, let me just uh, briefly update the story. Uh, Mercedes Stevenson has updated the story saying the president of the party gave permission and signed off on this. So, uh, you know, this isn't a, a bank robbery. Uh, I'm not a, a fan of Shear. But I'm certainly not a fan of anyone uh, listening, thinking that uh, Andrew Shear, you know, like a, like a burglar, you know, broke in in the middle of the night 
and, and got his hands on some money. Uh, he didn't do this alone. And uh, when they negotiated uh, Andrew Shear's deal, and the deals are always negotiated when you become uh, a leader, uh, sometimes you get topped up, but sometimes you don't. That's not unusual at all. Right. In this case, it looks like the topping up is either the full tuition uh, for Andrew Shear's kids in uh, private uh, school in Ottawa or the difference between what he was paying to have them schooled in Regina and uh, the more expensive bill in Ottawa. I wonder if there was a strategic link, a leak on this story, Charles, maybe from people who wanted to kind of hustle Shear out the door because he'd been kind of hinting he was going to try and hang in there and fight, but uh, maybe a lot of people wanted him gone. Your thoughts? I think... uh based on my own sources, uh, which started uh, the, the night of the election before the, the body was even cold, uh, who wanted uh, to make sure that uh, that someone else would be leading the, the troops into the next go. Uh, I, I think that uh, the thinking was that Andrew Scheer, after Christmas, would, uh, would resign, you yeah. know, take a walk in the snow. Um, and to make sure that the convention uh, coming up in April in, in Toronto is not not a funeral, not a civil war, but but you know a celebration, new leadership, uh, renewal, etc., etc., etc. Not to mention an opportunity to, to raise a lot of money because that's when you raise the most amount of money when you're the Conservative fund or the Liberal fund or any other fund. It's when you've got a leadership contest and people are buying memberships. So uh, that was uh, kind of the scenario, and it just seemed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Andrew Shear was going to be a skunk at that picnic. That Andrew Shear was actually getting serious about uh, maintaining his leadership all the way into April yeah. and challenging uh, the Conservative Party to take him out. Uh, so that's not the the quiet, um, uh, genial Andrew Shear that uh, people thought they had when he got the job as as a placeholder in between Harper and uh, whoever the next leader was going to be. I mean, the, the big story there is that none of the A-team, and that would have included the, the Jason Kennys and the Peter McKays, uh, Ron Ambrose, none of them wanted the job that Andrew Shear got. None, none of them wanted to replace Harper because none of them believed that they could defeat Justin Trudeau in the next go. Well, we've just had that go, and now we're going to get another go, and in that go, most conservatives are happy about the fact that somebody else will be, as I say, leading the troops. Yeah, I guess there's two ways to look at it. I agree with you, Charles. I think most conservatives probably thinking, okay, this is good. Let's get someone new in there to try and take Trudeau down, because we had him right where we wanted, rotted him last time, and we still couldn't beat him. But there, he does... Sheer still does have some of his supporters. Mike, uh, for example, people who might say that, look, he increased the popular vote for the Conservative Party. He, he increased the seat count for the Conservatives. That doesn't mean you get an automatic do-over, though, and another, another kick at it. Well, you know, the, 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 lead, the, the, the popular vote business is, I think, uh, the, the biggest farce in the world. I mean, getting, you know, 75% in some writings, you know, running up the score, uh, you know, in, in British Columbia, what would we think if a if a provincial party is able to absolutely run up the score uh, in the Okanagan and you know the Fraser Valley, uh, but can't uh, do squat in, in Vancouver or Victoria? I mean, so what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's got, he's he's increased the popular vote. You have to be competitive in Ontario and Quebec, right? And that's the ball game. If you can't if you can't be competitive there, it's over. Remember, Mike, his number one support for the conservative leadership in the last uh, contest was Quebec. Some of that was the supply management, some of that was other stuff. But the point is, Quebec was his strongest supporter. He had to make headway in Quebec. He did not make headway in Quebec. And Quebecers were the first to say privately and, give them credit, and publicly, that they were not going to support the idea of Andrew Scheer staying on. When the Quebec conservatives made that decision, it was ballgame over. 
Charles, thanks for coming on. You bet. That's Charles Adler. He's the host of Charles Adler Tonight. You can bet he'll be covering that story tonight for sure. Okay, let's talk about the eruption of that volcano in New Zealand now. The White Island volcano was actually a tourist attraction in New Zealand. There were tourists on the island when it erupted. At least six people killed, many more injured, including people who suffered some terrible burns. My guest is Glenn Williams-Jones. He's a professor of volcanology. He's a volcano expert at Simon Fraser University, co-director for the Center for Natural Hazards Research. Glenn, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Are you familiar with this uh, White Island volcano? Yes, I, I've not had the, the opportunity to visit, but um, it's it's a obviously a very active volcano, um, and as we've seen just uh, the last few days, uh, unfortunately, a very dangerous one. What w- what went through your mind when you first heard that this this volcano had erupted and there were people on the island? Uh, I mean, just like whenever we see these kinds of uh, of events, I mean, really, it's a disaster for for the people, their families, and you also think of the all of the other professionals who were involved in the response um, in these you know real crisis situations. Yeah. Do you think it's this was a, an active volcano that there were tour companies would take people out there and you could walk near it? Do you, do you think that's a good idea for tourists to be going near an, an active volcano? Well, I mean, the fact is, is that it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, I took my family down to Yellowstone Volcano uh, just this summer. Um, that's a huge active volcanic system. Um, so it, it really is a balance between trying to uh, deal with the public interest uh, and the public safety. Yeah, I, mean, I can certainly see the appeal of it. I mean, it'd be really something to see and, and to witness, uh, you know, even if it's, it's active, but of course not erupting, but that'd be something to see. I can understand the attraction of it. Have you ever, in your research and your work, have you ever been near an, an act, a lot of active volcanoes? Oh yeah, regularly. That's that's sort of par for the course. Uh, I I did my master's degree working on a volcano in Costa Rica, Arenal, uh, that was erupting every hour or so. Uh, I did my PhD work in, in Nicaragua on a volcano that has a boiling, roiling lava lake at the bottom of a crater, and it's pouring out gases. So, you know, I've worked on on a range of active volcanoes around the world, yeah. um, and the key thing that really stands out is they're each different. Um, so, as a scientist, it's exciting, but it's also, you know, from a management perspective, and say in the case of New Zealand here, um, it's a very difficult job to try to understand these volcanoes and the signals that they give off, you know, in the lead up to an eruption. Is there any way to predict that an eruption is going to occur? No. Uh, the and, you know, at best you'll get us as a community saying we can maybe try to forecast a volcanic eruption. Um, it's even worse when we're looking at the minor eruption that we actually had here in, in, uh, in New Zealand on White Island. The type of eruption, it's what's called a phreatic eruption. So basically a steam explosion. Um, magma somewhere at depth had been heating up water in the subsurface. That pressurized and then exploded. Um, and this, the telltale signals for that are very subtle, very weak. Um, and White Island has a very good monitoring network, and yet um, you know, it, it was not something that you could, could predict with any accuracy. 
What about uh, active volcanoes that may be closer to us? I mean, people may not be aware, but there's one near Whistler, isn't there? Yeah, north uh, north of Pemberton, in fact, yeah. uh, Mount Meager uh, is a volcano that, that we've been uh, doing uh, quite a bit of work on, um, and uh, it's it's a huge, big, ice-covered volcano that's also the, the site of Canada's largest ever landslide uh, back in 2010. Uh, and Mount Meager is currently got volcanic gases uh, melting its way through the glacier called Job Glacier, um, and it's it's very unstable. So um, we've been working closely with a number of private sector partners, uh, as well as as uh, municipal and regional and federal government agencies, to try to get monitoring set up there. Um, and hopefully, we will have a the start of a of a monitoring system uh, this coming summer. Uh, is that one that tourists go to as well? It's, it's, it's very remote, I understand, right? Difficult to get to? It is, yeah. The Canadian volcanoes, by and large, tend to be very big and, and very remote. Uh, there's a few uh, further north that I've worked on that are, are easier, but uh, in this situation at Mount Meager, you really have to go in by helicopter. So there are um, you know, local guides that do take in um, tourists, um, and they do it safely. I've, I've worked with a number uh, of these guides, and the, in, in the case of Meager, the, the bigger risk is, um, uh, like on the ice, is the, the toxic gases that are coming out. And so they use appropriate uh, gas sensors to ensure that, uh, that the, the, their clients, the, the tourists, are, are safe. Um, and it's, these are skilled alpinists. Um, so, you know, it, it is a balance between... Uh, you know, letting the community, the, the general public, access these, these potentially dangerous areas um, and the benefits of the broader education, getting people excited about science uh, and yeah. things like that, but also trying to ensure that they're, they're safe. What would, um, if Mount Meager were to erupt, would that pose a threat to Lower Mainland or any other areas around there? Uh, well, that is uh, something that we've been uh, we've been studying. In fact, um, Mount Meager uh, ha- was Canada's Mount St. Helens. Uh, about a little over 2,400 years ago, it had a large explosion that sent ash. Uh, we believe all the way out into um, into Alberta, at least uh, past Jasper. Um, so it. It is a big system. If you go up there, you can see huge pumice deposits all around. Um, one of my, my MSc students has been working on developing hazard maps for, for Mount Meager to try to see, well, you know, if the winds were going in the wrong direction, say further south, how often uh, would that happen and you know, could it impact the lower mainland? So these are the, the kinds of things that, that we're trying to do. One of the tricky things in the Canadian context is our volcanoes are not as active, uh, so we don't have a, a monitoring network and we don't have a lot of information from historic events to try to, to get a better understanding on, on how they're going to behave. What about Mount Baker in Washington State? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Mount Baker is is something that uh, you know we need to be aware of. Uh, the United States Geological Survey recently went through a, an important exercise of assessing all of the the volcanoes in in uh, the western uh, U.S. And Mount Baker was identified as one site where they need to put more monitoring instruments on it. Um, you know, if it were to to erupt, one likely uh, sort of cause would be or result rather. Uh, would be potentially melting of the ice 
uh, and snow on the, around the, the tops of the, the volcano, generating uh, lahars, essentially mud flows. And if they uh, went down the wrong valley, uh, you know, it could actually impact on, onto the Fraser Valley. Wow. Okay. I, that sounds like a good argument for monitoring these things. I mean, do we have monitoring systems in place? I think you mentioned earlier, you think we need more, right? Oh, we absolutely need more. The, the only uh, main uh, active monitoring system that we have is the broad earthquake network, uh, you know, for the next big one, uh, if you like. Um, but those are not close enough to the volcanoes to give us the, the, the early warning. So, you know, we're, we're working on trying to get these... Um, you know, more instruments uh, spread out around the, the Canadian volcanoes so that we can build the baseline data. We, we want to know what that volcano is doing when it's not doing anything at all. What's, what's the background sleeping behavior so that we can then maybe look for those subtle telltale signals that it's starting to wake up, that things are, are changing. Um, but in the Canadian context, it's very difficult because most of the volcanoes are remote. Uh, they're hard to get to. They're expensive to get to. Um, so it's a non. It's not a trivial exercise to actually right. do this. So we're you know trying to bring in satellite monitoring and and all sorts of different techniques. It's fascinating work. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glenn Williams Jones, Simon Fraser University. He's a volcanologist. It's a big day on the ride-hailing file. Members of the TransLink Mayor's Council have just passed a motion to fast-track a regional business license for ride-hailing. I can't believe it. This is like some common sense suddenly rearing its head. Only Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum voted against it. He's totally against ride-hailing. He's in bed with the taxi companies. He doesn't want ride-hailing in there at all. The John Horgan government has been made a whole bunch of promises here to bring ride-hailing in B.C. I'll believe it when I see it, but this is a big step forward. Let's check in with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown now who's on this story. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Mike. Yeah, a big step forward for sure from the TransLink Mayor's Council. And this plan uh, will have an interim intermunicipal business license in place. The aim is to have that in place by January 31st of next year and a full framework by the end of next year. And as you say, mayors around the mayor's council table this morning, all in agreement except for Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. At the end of the day, he says he doesn't want it, and he says neither do the residents of Surrey. And how does he know that? He says he ran a campaign on it, and he's been talking to residents. And here's more of what he has to say, Mike. I think um, we've had a long history in Surrey not supporting uh, ride hailing. Um, um, The majority or a lot of our residents are against it. Uh, And basically, um, we have been against it um, for well over a year now because of the fact that it's not a level playing field um, between the rail or the ride hailing and the taxi industry and for example on that um, when I was mayor in the past um, for nine years we tried every year to get more taxis into our city um, to service a fast-growing city and provincial governments of the day of different stripes continued to say no we could not get any more things so it was very very limited in the number of um, taxis we could get over
over nine years. So therefore, it kept going down and down as our population go up. Ride hailing came in, um, and they can put as many cars in their streets as we want. And um, that's not a level playing field. When taxis have been restricted for years, and then all of a sudden, ride hailing comes in, and they can put as many cars on the road as possible. And so we have a lot of our residents that are involved in the taxi industry, and they're very, very upset in the fact that there isn't a level playing field in a number of areas and regulations and so forth. So I'm speaking on behalf of them and in protecting their jobs and protecting their families and their revenues that they want to see a, a level playing field in the industry. Okay, I, when McCallum says people in Surrey don't support ride hailing, I don't know what he's smoking. He is He's just absolutely in bed with the taxi companies, and that's why he wants to keep ride hailing out. It's as simple as that. Janet, let me ask you a couple of questions real quick about how this thing is going to work. So the, the mayor's council are saying they'll, they'll bring in some sort of metro-wide licensing by January 31st. Is that, are we going to get ride hailing before that, or is this another delay? Well, we're supposed to be getting ride hailing before that, according to the provincial oh, yeah. government. Uh, in terms of the single fee structure, that is yet to be determined, Mike. Um, in response to what Mr. McCallum is saying, uh, I tweeted his comments, and Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman tweeted immediately saying, no, that's not true at all what the mayor is saying. She is saying that businesses in Surrey indeed want ride hailing and have yeah. been demanding it for a very, very long time. Right. So, you know, those are the comments. You decide what side you want to come down on. But uh, around this table here at TransLink this morning, uh, the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, saying they are looking for consist- consistency across the board. He says this has been too long in coming. The mayor of Langley, Mayor Fro, saying it- it's time we move forward on this. And uh, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, saying the residents expect us to get this done, but he says the devil will be in the details. Oh, yeah. you mm-hmm. be- Okay. Great reporting, Janet. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. As Global News senior reporter Janet Brown covering that uh, Surrey Mayor's Co- or the Translake Mayor's Council decision. Let's get reaction to this breaking story now from Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC, uh, BC Green Party. He's been calling for a long time for ride hailing and he was uh, very early on saying you should have a single license in metro vancouver andrew thanks for coming on a oh, pleasure thanks for having me on mike it's a good good news to hear that uh, surely is good news yeah i mean if we get one license for the whole region i mean that's just common sense but uh, as you heard one of the mayors say there the devil will be in the details and you know i want to see the details and how this is going to work i'm still not fully convinced but why do you think you need a a single business license for the whole metro vancouver region for this industry the thing the, one of the one of the key aspects of introducing ride hailing was it was also introducing an opportunity for innovation in bc business uh if you did not if you had this kind of uh patchwork or quilt work of of regulations heavy regulations the only players who would have actually been in vancouver would have been Uber and Lyft, perhaps the big guys. Now there's a possibility to enable, you know, more more smaller companies, BC-based businesses, et cetera, and and it actually sets the stage for 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 other jurisdictions to model. You know, if if for example Victoria, uh, we have 17 municipalities, Mike, here in uh, Capital Regional District. Can you imagine if 70 uh, if they were all having slightly different uh, 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 I think I got the number of municipalities wrong there, but we have an awful lot of them here. Yeah. Can you imagine if each of them had their own their own regulation? No. Nothing would happen. And so, no, I mean it. It makes absolute sense that 
you bring in a single business license for the whole region. But of course, this is ride hailing, so I guess common sense doesn't count. <laughs> but when well, that, you get that's the problem, that's the problem is yeah. that uh, you know there really has not been a political appetite to expedite this process, and uh, you know we're seeing now the mayors of TransLink with their decision today saying, okay, you know what, it's time for us collectively to to do what needs to be done, and so hats off to them for moving forward with this. Okay, there was some speculation among among these mayors there today. I understand that they felt that they had to move forward with a with a region wide licensing system because if they didn't, the provincial government might step in here and and force a metro wide license system. You've got good sources in the government. I know you have a weekly meeting with the premier and you're you're you you got a deal here with the NDP to keep them in power. Have you heard anything like that? Was the BC government going to step in here? Well, I mean, 100 percent, we were we would and would continue to pressure for them to do that if uh, because we've been trying to, you know, long before uh, the NDP brought this in. And then, frankly, um, before the liberals were talking about it, I brought in two private members bills to try to move this forward. It would have been like three or yeah. four years ago now, maybe five years ago. Uh, and so we have been pushing for this to come in. It, it's And uh, so we would have continued to push to have a regional licensing if the, the mayors didn't come up with some kind of a workable solution. I'm still a little troubled about, uh, you know, uh, if you're in the interior of BC, for example, the Kootenays or in the Okanagan region, there was a, a lot of passion and desire for ride hailing uh, enabled there. Had we not allowed, if, had we not allowed us like BC-based businesses to, 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 to get going, but through, you know, crushing them with this, this regulatory overhead, we might not see ride hailing emerge, um, emerge in, in these districts. And, and the, the stories we, we, when I was on the first panel that we got from the regional communities was there's a real desire there. People who want to perhaps live out uh, far away want to go to the pub at night or they want right. to go and visit somebody in hospital. So, so this, is, this is really good news today. What do you say to Doug McCallum? He voted against this today, the mayor of Surrey. He says people in Surrey don't want ride hailing. Well, I think the people associated with the taxi industry in Surrey don't want ride-hailing. That's correct. And there's certainly a very strong lobby group. But I'm not so sure the millennials... Um, who have been, you know, knocking on the politicians' doors for quite some time, don't want it. But uh, uh, but right. I, I don't want to comment. He, he's representing uh, his constituent base, and that's what he's elected to do. So, so uh, I, I, you know, I don't know that I agree with him, but I don't live in Surrey. Andrew, I think you've done a good job in this file. Thank you for coming on. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Andrew Weaver, he's the leader of the B.C. Green Party. He's one of the few, I think, politicians with kind of clean hands on this thing. The party that we've all built together is far too important for one individual. Our party is not a cult of personality, it's not shaped by whoever's name is on the masthead, but by the hundreds of thousands of conservatives who pound in lawn signs, sit on their riding associations, and donate a few dollars every month. And as our party begins to embark on this exciting opportunity, electing a new leader, my only ask to my fellow conservatives is this. Let's stay united. Andrew Scheer announcing in the House of Commons today he will step down as the Conservative Party leader. He will. He says he will stay on as leader until an, a replacement is chosen. And I think there might be a few people looking to rush him out the door a little quicker than that. There's been a lot of pressure on this guy after the recent federal election when the Conservatives came up short and trying to replace the Justin Trudeau liberal government there. They had Trudeau right where they wanted him, mired in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. The whole blackface, shocking scandal of Trudeau breaks in the middle of the campaign. They still couldn't get it done. A lot of people thought 
Shear should step aside and let someone else have a crack at it instead. He had been indicating earlier that he was going to try and hang in there and fight to uh, run another election for the Conservatives, but he announces today that he is stepping down. Meanwhile, uh, reports from Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson that maybe one of the reasons he stepped down was revelations that the Conservative Party was paying for his kids' private education, and that was causing some problems. Let's check in now with Colin Metcalf. He's a senior advisor at the uh, McMillan Vantage Policy Group. He is a former staffer in the Stephen Harper Conservative government. Colin, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Your your thoughts on uh, Shear's announcement today? Well, I think it's mixed blessings for a lot of conservatives. I mean, uh, after the results we saw in the last election, um, a lot of people were, dis- were disappointed that we uh, came short. The big question, I think, for everyone, including, I think, the leader, was uh, uh, going into the next election, how do we make up those votes that we didn't get in some of those key ridings that we thought we were, we were going to be more competitive in? In the lower mainland, for example, Delta. Delta was a competitive riding with an excellent candidate that we had, and we still lost by 2,000 votes. What would we do next time differently that uh, this leader would be able to do uh, in order to put forward a better message to get those 2,000-plus people to vote? And that's the big question that people had in their minds. And frankly, I don't think a lot of people could answer that question, which is probably why the leader decided to do what he did today. What was the problem with Scheer as the leader of this party? I mean, if they couldn't beat Trudeau under these circumstances, I, I doubt that they could. he could beat him uh, the next time either. So I think he had to go personally. But wh- why couldn't he get it done? What was the problem there? Well, I think there's a, a host of issues. Uh, first of all, I, I think that the the prime minister was wounded, but not mortally so, by the by the blackface brownface uh, issue that came up on the um, you know in the, in the middle of the election, or the beginning of the election. And frankly, I don't think that the impact of that, you know, we saw afterwards people saying, "Well, it's no big deal." Well, it is a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal enough for people not to vote for Trudeau, as we saw. the 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 issue for for conservatives is what do we do to put forward a positive message, one that is going to resonate with people in urban Canada and rural Canada, and that's where I think the campaign fell short. Okay, what do you think about these revelations coming out of Ottawa today about the party, the Conservative Party, apparently paying for Andrew Scheer's kids and their private education? Your thoughts on that? Well, I understand that the uh, party executive director came up with a statement today that seems to make sense, that leaders um, often are provided stipends, um, especially when they're having to move their families, you know, from the prairies, in this, in this case, to Ottawa. Um, if, if there's anything untoward, that'll come out in due course, and we'll hear about that. I'm not so sure that there is anything, any there there in this case, but we'll see what happens. Uh, but the, the notion of a stipend to a party leader to offset costs associated with him leading the party isn't yeah. anything new. Right. No, that's a lots of parties have done that. Let me ask you about Shear's uh, statement today that he intends to stay on as the Conservative Party leader until a replacement is chosen. I'm already hearing rumblings from people who want to sh- shuffle him out the door quicker than that. Your thoughts there? Yeah, it's going to be two trains of thought. You know, some people think that, you know, let's, for the sake of consistency and, and transition, let's uh, let's have the leader stay until a new leader's chosen. And others, like you say, are going to be trying to push him out the door uh, sooner than that. The what party will make those decisions internally, um, and, 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 and it will be what it will be. But, I mean, you know, I don't think that there's anything um, anything there that would prevent the leader from, uh, from uh, being the interim leader, if you would, until yeah. a new leader's chosen. Got less than a minute left here, Colin. Who do you like as a, as a new leader? How about Peter McKay? 
Well, Peter McKay is one of several people that, that that's being touted as potential. Uh, John yeah. Baird, uh, Ronna Ambrose, Lisa Raitt, you know, James Moore, you know, Pierre Polyev, Carolyn Mulroney, even Christy Clark's being touted. Uh, I've known Christy for a long time. I, I work with her uh, ex-husband. Um, I, no one's called me to ask me to support Christy Clark for the Conservative Party leadership yet. Does she speak French? I don't, I don't know. think so. I? I don't think no, she does. I don't think so. Okay. Well, do you think I would disqualify her? Well, it certainly uh, would be a big hill to climb when okay. you uh, lose over a hundred when you lose out of over a hundred seats in Quebec uh, without yeah. being able to speak the language of the province. Colin, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Good talking hey, to you, Colin Metcalf. He's a former staffer in the uh, former Stephen Harper Conservative government. Christy Clark, really, is the federal Conservative leader? No, couldn't happen, could it? This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Let's talk about the strike by forest workers on Vancouver Island over five months. 3,000 workers, employees of Western Forest Products, off the job. This also affects contractors. These are the small companies that contract to Western Forest Products. They are hurting, too. A lot of some of their people have been laid off. They've had some of their benefits cut. A lot of these contractors and workers at the B.C. Legislature Yesterday, 200 of them on the front steps pleading with the government for help. Let's check in now with Max Girth. He was one of the organizers of that rally yesterday. He's a project manager at one of the contracting operations in Port Alberni, Rockstar Operations. Max, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's good to be on the show today. Hey, Max, what, what was, why did you organize or help organize that rally yesterday? What was the message you're trying to get across there? Uh, basically, um, we had to uh, take matters into our own hand at uh, this point in time. It's been way too long, like you mentioned. It's been uh, coming up on six months here with the strike and other um, issues in the forest sector uh, looming over our heads here. And uh, it, it was time to uh, get the ball rolling and um, uh, get this resolved. What What do you want people to know? I, th- I think this dispute, in a lot of ways, for a lot of British Columbians, has kind of flown under the radar. Maybe they don't know the the details. Is what are the main things you want people to know about about the situation? Well, first of all, um, people need to understand um, that this province was uh, built on on forestry, and um, it it continues to be an important industry, especially on Vancouver Island and the BC Coast. And uh, we have not been getting the attention. Uh, that we deserve on this matter. And um, people need to understand the trickle-down effect uh, that uh, this strike has on not just the contracting world, but also um, suppliers, um, communities, families, and um, and everybody down the uh, supply chain. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about some of the stories you're hearing? I mean, we hear things about you know, people having difficulty making mortgage payments, paying, making vehicle payments, stress on families, that kind of thing. What sort of stories are you hearing out there from the hardships that this is causing? Well, uh, we're coming up on Christmas here, and um, as everybody knows, it's, um, it's the end of the year. Uh, it should be um, a happy time of the year, but um, uh, nobody um, has any more uh, smiles on their faces at this time of year, and um, it's, it, it's devastating to to see that happening to to our own employees, uh, to friends, uh, family, um, marriages are getting divorced. There's um, basically um, mental um, issues uh, starting to happen uh, within our community here, uh, because this really wears on people, and people don't know um, a way out. Um, they we we have to stick up for employees, and we have to find a solution here, and it has to happen now. 
Speaking to Max Girth about the forestry strike on Vancouver Island, 3,000 workers off, off the job for more than five months now. Max, your company is one of the contracting companies here that's been affected by this strike. How has that hit home for your company and for your employees there? Um, our employees, 50 of them are on strike, basically off the job. Uh, management currently is uh, keeping, keeping things going here at the office in Port Alberni. Uh, but that's about it. And uh, we need uh, government to step up and do their job. And uh, we had to organize this rally yesterday. And I really hope whatever was discussed in those rooms down at the legislature uh, yesterday afternoon, I really hope this wasn't just talk. We need some action and we need action now. What do you want to see happen? We need um, an action plan. Uh, we need government to, um, to step in, do their job, and help us out. We're we're pleading for help here, and we've been we've been watching this for for way too long. This this needs to end today. Yeah. Do you think like there are there are options on the table here for government? I mean, they could order cooling off period. They could appoint an industrial inquiry commissioner in the dispute. There's already a good mediator in there, but it, it sounds like maybe. Do you think the government should be intervening more to try and get this thing resolved? Yeah, whatever it takes to uh, get yeah. guys back to work. A cooling off period uh, would be uh, would be a start. Uh, guys need to go back on the job. They need a paycheck. Uh, things uh, can get worked out in the background while that's happening. Do you think that do the people affected by this strike do they see, do they feel forgotten in any way? Like it, it just occurs to me that we've seen a lot of focus on the last few weeks on labor disputes in Metro Vancouver in involving the transit system, and those didn't involve a strike. There were a lot of threatened strikes that were resolved at the last minute, and that seems to kind of take up a lot of people's attention on an, on an almost strike in Vancouver. But here you have 3,000 people off the job for more than five months. Do people feel like it's for, they've been forgotten in, in some ways? Absolutely, Mike. And yeah. um, it took five months for... Uh, Claire Trevenna to come up island to um, basically get grilled by uh, probably 50 plus loggers, um, us being one of them, and uh, which was which was a ballsy move to come up there. Um, she's hopefully delivered the message. We were trying to deliver the message yesterday down in Victoria, and uh, yes, we feel like we've been forgotten. Uh, if Vancouver. Uh, can't get on the sea bus, uh, people start crapping their pants. But this is the entire island. A whole industry is at stake here, and the government needs to take an interest in it, and uh, we deserve that interest. All right, Max, thanks for your time today. I hope there is a resolution to this dispute soon. I got a feeling that maybe the government is getting engaged here at the top level, and, and maybe we'll see some some progress on this in the next couple of weeks. I mean, do you guys have any optimism that maybe things... You guys have done a good job speaking out here in the last little while. I think maybe it's gotten the government's attention. Is there any kind of feeling that maybe there's there's some uh, light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, there, there certainly is, and uh, we hope that this uh, strike at least can be resolved here within the next, um, hopefully, week. Uh, we, we are optimistic. Uh, but, again, we were, um, we're planning on coming back to Victoria, and uh, we're definitely a force to be reckoned with. Uh, this is not a joke and um, we're prepared to take further steps. All right, Max, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. that is Max Girth. He's the project manager with Rockstar Operations in Port Alberni. They're one of the contractors for Western Forest Products. You heard him describe a lot of his people are on strike. 
a lot of people really hurting badly in this strike that's dragged on for more than five months now. I got a feeling the government's going to start getting involved more aggressively here in the next few days. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah. Let's talk about the new North American trade deal now, officially known as the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or the USMCA. NAFTA was easier to say. Let's call it the new NAFTA. The deal replaces the old NAFTA agreement. U.S. President Donald Trump said it was America's worst trade deal ever. All three countries declaring victory now. They say it's a win-win-win. Everybody wins. Let's talk to a real analyst now to break that down. Mark Warner, he's an international trade lawyer in Canada. He worked on the original NAFTA deal. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Mark. Not too bad. How are you? Thanks for coming on. Okay, Mark, they call it a win-win-win, but usually in a trade deal, there are winners and losers, right? Which industries would you say are the biggest winners in this deal? Well, I think, I think the biggest winner, uh, I guess, is the steel industry in one sense because they've got uh, the steel industry in, in, in Canada and, and um, the United States because there are restrictions that have been, that have been added in in terms of how much imported um, a, a steel from, let's say, China can go into uh, products that are used to make cars in the automobile industry. So that hurts the steel industry in Mexico because they do tend to get some steel from China, and it, and it helps the, uh, the steel industry potentially in Canada and the United States. Um, the other big winner, I guess, is the biopharmaceutical industry on the Canadian side of the border because we our industry is heavily oriented towards the generic manufacturers, and some of the provisions in the uh, in the in the original USMCA signed last year would have favored the patented or branded uh, drug manufacturers. And those provisions have been seriously watered down and in some cases removed um, in the agreement, that was, the protocol to the agreement that was signed right. this week. So those are the two obvious big winners. Okay, how about some losers? Would you say, say that the dairy industry, are they taking a hit here? Uh, well, they'll say they will because they get more money that way through adjusted assistance. But nothing that was done yesterday hurts the dairy industry. Whatever hit they had um, was a hit that they suffered when the original agreement was signed. Um, so nothing, there was no change from what was done this week on that. And, you know, there's no difference between what was done yesterday and, sorry, what was done last year on dairy and what was agreed to by Canada in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership on dairy. So, yes, they will, they will squeal a bit about it, but um, they really didn't lose anything yesterday. The industry that is uh, from Quebec-based industry that is squealing a little bit now is aluminum. Um, and that is because the, the, the provisions, the changes to the rules, and origin, rules of origin that I just described with respect to steel were not changed with respect to aluminum. And so although there is a North American requirement uh, for aluminum, it's not as strong as the one that was negotiated and agreed to this week for steel. And so you hear politicians from the Bloc Québécois to the uh, Premier of Quebec now saying that aluminum uh, was treated unfairly. I suspect that's not going to last too long, but that, uh, that's certainly an industry that feels that it wasn't um, treated fairly. Okay, how, Mark, how could this change, this new deal, change the overall kind of trade dynamic here for the three countries, and especially for us here in Canada, if we have trade peace now and business has got some certainty? Does that help the economy? Does that free up a bunch of money for companies to start investing again? It does to some extent. I think there's, there's, there's the two big benefits I think that I see here is is at a time when the WTO, the World Trade Organization, seems to be in a bit of disarray with respect to dispute settlement because the Americans are challenging the, the appellate body, the appeal system to, for trade disputes. What was agreed to yesterday or two days ago 
um, strengthens the state-to-state dispute settlement mechanism um, within within new NAFTA, which has always been an issue that bothered Canadians. So that that is going to further, uh, I think, help in reducing some uncertainty. Um, and so that's good for Canadian businesses. But then there are other ways where 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 some uncertainty has been added. You know, um, there is one sort of sleeper provision in the agreements, or well, with respect to labor and environment, that talks about. Uh, violations of the labor provisions or environmental provisions, sort of creating a rebuttable presumption to have an adverse trade effect on other uh, countries. Um, so, for instance, we have had challenges under the North under the NAFTA environmental chapter in the past with respect to Alberta tailings ponds and Hydro Quebec's transmission lines. And if those were in fact to be found to be violate the NAFTA provisions, we would find ourselves having to explain why that isn't presumptively a violation of our trade commitments. Not a lot of people have focused on that in the last uh, 48 hours, but I think that that's going to come back to be a bit of a sleeper provision as we go forward. Hey, Mark, what about the uh, the forest sector, which is of keen interest to our listeners here in British Columbia, the forest industry going through a real tough time here in British Columbia, but forestry, the logging industry, it's not covered in NAFTA, right? This is a separate deal. No. So I think what I'd say about that, traditionally when, in all the times when we've been talking about uh, NAFTA and the NAFTA negotiations, we focused on the um, Chapter 19 dispute settlement mechanism, which has to do with basically reviewing the trade remedy, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty decisions by the American trade agencies. What was strengthened uh, in this current protocol to the uh, agreement was the state-to-state dispute settlement mechanism. That's to say, um, was, was the old Chapter 20. And before, the thinking was that the United States, if it didn't like Canada's use of those provisions, they could just block the establishment of a dispute settlement panel. It can no longer do that. And the reason that's relevant is some of those historic chapter, sorry, some of those historic softwood lumber cases have spilled out of chapter uh, 19, you know, the dispute, the trade remedy uh, review system into the state-to-state dispute settlement system. So that, I think, is some potential benefit uh, for Canadian lumber producers, but very far down the line. Mark, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate talking you to you. Bet. All right, that's Mark Warner, Toronto trade lawyer. He worked on the original NAFTA deal.